This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel and James Forsyth. Now, it is day one of the rail strikes that we will be seeing two more days if they go ahead just this week with threats of more to follow. Isabel, there's lots of commuter disruption, lots of people who are saying they've been forced to work from home, some more pleased about that than others. But we spoke yesterday about the government's stance on this. Where's Labour in all this? So this has been building up for a little while and to a certain extent the tensions over this were inevitable given you've got individual Labour MPs who get funding from the RMT which is the union that's uh, striking today. The RMT is not affiliated directly to the Labour Party. The Labour Party is affiliated to the TUC which is supporting these strikes. So there's lots of sort of links going into the party, even though there isn't the, the you know, that official trade union link like with Unite. Um, but obviously also the strikes are hugely inconvenient for a lot of Labour voters. And so there lies the conflict for the Labour leadership. And when I interviewed Rachel Maskell a few weeks ago on Week in Westminster, I asked her whether she expected front benches to be on picket lines this week. And she said she really hoped that that would be something that Keir Starmer uh, would encourage, uh, which I thought was uh, probably setting him up to to disappoint those expectations because it's it's not that common certainly outside of the the Corbyn era, for Labour leaders to support, to to encourage their colleagues to go and stand on the picket lines as a sort of there's a sort of quiet consensus that in some cases they'll go and support their local strikes, but uh, but but not a sort of public a public facing instruction. And so then we've had the the the, the chaos uh, which we mentioned a little bit yesterday of Wes Streeting, who is the Shadow Health Secretary, saying that if he were a train driver, he'd be striking and then having to apologise to the Shadow Cabinet. And then a row over whether front benches are allowed to go on picket lines, with some Labour front benches getting very upset at the idea that they're not allowed to do that. So um, Peter Kyle is one uh, example of uh, an MP who is not he, he's not on the left of the party by any stretch of the imagination but he was one of the people who was very upset at the idea that front benches should not be on picket lines saying come what may I will be on a picket line supporting workers tomorrow and so it's not just opening sort of left right splits within the party it's also opening up splits between those who think that Keir Starmer is a leader with sufficient authority to be obeyed and those who don't. And James, when it comes to who's going to pay the political price for these strikes, we know that the government these days is quite keen for a fight. Do you think that we are, there is a sense that the strikes can be more painful for Labour than the Tories? Um, and how long does that last? Of all the strikes that there might be this summer, today is the easiest day in political terms for the government. 
train drivers are relatively well paid. It's the beginning of disruption, and so people are kind of most prepared to wear it. And the Tories can say, look, you know, we there, there was a reasonable offer. The, 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 the railways have to change because passenger numbers haven't come back to where they were before COVID. And, you know, there are some kind of outdated practices on the railways that, that you can point to. And also, it's quite clear that the RMT are not shy of a fight either. I think it becomes much more difficult, first of all, if this disruption drags on. And secondly, if you end up in a situation where, for example, teachers are striking. I think most parents took from homeschooling, oh my word, look at what teachers have to put up with. I think there would be a sense that if teachers went on strike, there would be more sympathy. I think that for the government, what was also difficult is... Look at what happened to Andrew Bailey when he said people shouldn't ask for a pay rise. Everyone said, well, that's all right for you. You're on 300 plus grand as governor of the Bank of England. And, you know, what's your job to control inflation? Inflation's out of control. Who are you to tell me not to ask for a pay rise? I think cabinet ministers will find themselves in a similar predicament. They're all on six-figure salaries. What are you doing telling people to exercise pay restraint? And, but the government also knows that it's only that, you know, if you have big public sector pay rises then everyone in the private sector is going to want one too. So the government is going to be in a more difficult position. I think ultimately the challenge for the government is this. They can say all they like about Labour, and Labour have got themselves into a political pickle over the strike today. Just before we uh, came on air, you and Isabel were talking about how Angela Rayner's tweet this morning seems to indicate that she seems to support the strike, something that Keir Starmer has not been prepared to, to take a position on. And yes, it will cause Labour some difficulty. But I think the problem for the Tories is that they are getting into a bit of a rut at the moment of talking about how they're going to stop something from happening and then not taking the action. So we've had repeated Tory promises that they were going to legislate for minimum levels of service. That hasn't happened. So you can have a strike like today. And the danger is that people begin to say, oh, look at the Rwanda policy. You know, Oh, we're going to send people to Rwanda where if they cross the channel in small boats, but they can't because of legal challenges and they haven't put a legal basis in place for the policy. And I mean, the danger is that, you know, Right now, I think the public are fairly sympathetic to the government's position on this. But if you end up in a situation in three months, six months' time, when strikes are still crippling the country, people will just say to the government, why haven't you sorted this out one way or the other, either by agreeing to the demands of the unions or by having kind of created a legislative basis that would allow a service to operate even when the unions are on strike. Now, James... When it comes to other issues uh, currently giving Number 10 a headache or that have the potential to, can you just give us the latest on what's happening when it comes to Lord Guite's successor? Do we expect that to now be a panel? Um, how long is the review going to take? So after Lord Guite resigned, the kind of government set various hairs running by suggesting that they weren't, they weren't committed to appointing kind of one person to replace him, a, a straight successor. There is some talk of a kind of three-person panel uh, so that one individual might take on one looking at one case and then another take on looking at another case. And the idea would be to kind of reduce the pressure on the, on one individual. Though, as we've discussed before, cynics might suggest there will be other ways to reduce the pressure on the uh, ethics advisor. Labour are now saying, well, hang on a second, this might be a way of the government not replacing Lord Guy at all. And so they are trying to call us uh, to get a vote in Parliament on an idea that 
back. If the government won't replace their ethics advisor, there would then be one appointed that would report into Parliament. Now, uh, I think this is more a way of trying to get Tory MPs on the record voting against something that they Labour then can then use as the basis for Facebook ads and leaflets and the like. But I think it does illustrate the problem. I think, I think it, is a, it is not a credible policy to say that you're going to go months and months without replacing Lord Guide. And if you're going to place him with this three-person panel, you've got to ensure, I think, as a minimum, that that three-person panel doesn't lead to any diminution in the powers of the role. And Isabel, this row also, I think, helps to explain why a story regarding Carrie Johnson is receiving lots of attention at the moment. Now, this is related to a story that appeared in the first edition of The Times, effectively alleging that Boris Johnson uh, tried to make Carrie Johnson at the time Carrie Simmons, chief of staff in the foreign office when he was foreign secretary, but aides advised against it and he didn't do it. It didn't appear online, but it also, I think, did has had parts of it have appeared previously in um, Lord Ashcroft's book and so forth. But can you just talk us through what's happening there in terms of how it relates, I suppose, to um, whether Boris Johnson is an ethics advisor? Yeah, so having left the role, Guite has now indicated that uh, whoever takes over from him may wish to open an investigation into this and into subsequent claims that have surfaced that Johnson suggested that that, that Carrie uh, Johnson become either the COP26 ambassador or a spokesperson for the Earthshot Prize. Again, there have been denials from Number 10 and and from Carrie Johnson's aides that um, that this was something that Boris Johnson sought to get, but that obviously hasn't been a denial that he, at some stage, discussed it with. And, and Isabel, it's, it's interesting on that one, because when I was looking at the cop story, that's not the first time we've heard that either, in the sense that Dominic Cummings, in an interview with Lynn Barber, I think last year for The Spectator, alleged that Boris Johnson had wanted to give Carrie Johnson a cop role at the time number 10, again, denied it. Yeah. So this, again, goes into the um, the sort of the, the court of Boris Johnson and how he conducts himself. And uh, one of the concerns was apparently that to get Carrie Johnson into either of these roles would be to compromise her status as a private citizen, which is something that she and her husband are very keen to point to um, whenever there is criticism of the way in which the couple conduct themselves, um, whether at, at checkers or um, in terms of the sort of, you know, the redecoration of the, the Downing Street flat and so on. Thanks, Isabel. Thanks, James. And thank you for listening. The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK and our closing date is the 4th of July.